In terms of, you know, um, the beginning of that process of plausibility, you know, we actually need to do a kind of deep dive into our communities. Uh, we cannot presume that we know what our communities want, need, think, believe, aspire to. We cannot assume anything anymore. Um, I'm sure some of your viewers and listeners will be aware of the analogy of the church as being a bridge which used to connect two bits of land over water, but then a storm came and all of a sudden this bridge which used to connect two bits of land and maybe we might say God and the world um, became completely disconnected from both. It's become stranded, you know, and, and that's a bit what some of our communities are like. So we actually need to really understand that we need to, we need to actually go out to our communities and ask them what they need, what they think, where they see the issues being and what they think of the church. We actually need to see ourselves as others see us and, and be willing to accept what they're saying. But actually a big part of it is about the attitude you bring. It's actually about if you love your community and we're all called to love our communities, that means we need to listen to them. It means we actually need to engage in real relationships with people and we need to be willing to change our behavior if it's actually not helpful to our communities. Welcome again to Emerging Emmaus and Ruth and I have the great pleasure of welcoming Reverend Dr. Liam Gerald Fraser to Emerging Emmaus today, Minister of St. Michael's Parish Church, Linlithgow, and he was the first person to be ordained to a pioneer ministry role in the Church of Scotland. Is that the case, Liam? It is, it is indeed true, Neil. And um, back in 2017, um, I was the first person to ever be ordained to a pioneer role at the University of Edinburgh. And um, it had kind of two roles to it. I mean, first of all, it was a partly a chaplaincy role. Um, so we were, you know, doing the normal things that chaplains do, looking after students, um, eating lots of pizza, um, staying up too late at the student union and so forth. Um, but the other thing we were asked to do was to basically try and create a new community from scratch. Um, you know, that was actually one of the core purposes of the task. And it wasn't straightforward, but on the other hand, you know, we did have a lot of success with um, the Humanist Society. And, um, you know, we built up a dialogue with them with regard to science and religion. And, um, you know, actually the, the, the head of the Humanist Society came to faith, which was a, very, a big surprise. Um, it's an odd thing when you start celebrating communion and see the head of the Humanist Society walk in and take communion. It's um, odd. But um, after a couple of years, you know, um, I, I suddenly kind of was looking around at other things and, you know, I was never really one for seeing myself within a parish setting. Um, I never had any interest in any parish whatsoever. I thought I'd remain in chaplaincy roles um, and, and maybe, you know, kind of power church work. Um, but then, you know, the St. Michael's uh, vacancy came up and um, a whole range of extremely strange things took place um, to direct me to this parish. Um, to the point where at one point I was praying at a bus stop um, and praying, Lord, you know, should I uh, go and apply for St. Michael's? And someone literally walked up to me with a note that said yes, um, which was a bit weird, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so, so applied and, and, and got the job. And uh, yeah, here I am now. Fantastic. And you've written a book that is very helpful in helping us think about mission in contemporary Scotland, what what prompted you to to write the book, and what sort of response have you received about your book? I think the the major reason for writing the book was a fact that you know in England and in Europe and in North America, there's a huge amount of research that takes place 
about the place of the church in society, about contemporary spirituality, um, and so on and so forth. But actually, there's very, very little from a Scottish context. Um, it's only really been recently that people have really started to look in depth about mission in a Scottish context. So the first reason was really just simply to actually try and meet a bit of a gap uh, and try and collate all the existing evidence there was about what is going on, why we're we in this position, um, to try and explain how Scotland has changed and what it's like today. And then finally, to, to make some comment about what the churches were trying to do and to, you know, to give my own opinion about whether the things they were doing are likely to be successful in light of the evidence that we have or whether they, they were more likely to be unsuccessful. Um, so really it was to try and fill a gap in the, in the market, really. Um, and in terms of the response, that be quite a good response on the whole. Um, I, I get invited to speak in places, which is nice. Um, you know, and so for someone whose social calendar is not exactly packed out, it's nice to be asked to do anything. Um, so I get to go all across the country speaking to nice people, you know, and talking about mission. Um, but I think, that, you know, it's, it's interesting that even now I detect sort of two main sort of like differences, maybe, of emphasis between people. Um, I think there's still a, a big contrast between the established denominations and, and growing new churches. Um, you know, we have a situation where the Church of Scotland, for example, has, you know, thousands of properties all across the country. But there's very little connection between us, our huge property portfolio, and the fact that there's you know, people planting churches all over the country. Um, and there's now, for example, the possibility of a new um, ecumenical church planting network coming into fruition. And, you know, it's my hope, the fact that traditional denominations and the newer churches can actually work together uh, rather than separately or in competition. There's lots of things we can do to benefit each other. But the other tension too, I think, is about a kind of, um, a kind of emphasis. And it's actually related to the, the, the way in which you do things here on uh, Emerging Emmaus about, about lament and about hope. Because I think that um, you know, some people are naturally more hopeful um, and some people are a bit more lamenting. Um, and you know, in the book, I talk about how even in the days of Israel and Judah, there were prophets that spoke really well and said everything was going to be fine. And then there were prophets who said, actually, everything's going to be really bad. <laughs> and um, you find both within scripture. There's a place for both. And therefore, I think that, you know, the way I look at it, we need to try and see the world really for what it is. And for me, that's really, really important. And that's what I try and do in the book more than anything else. But at the same time, we can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, regardless of our situation right now, um, you know, God is still in control. God is still in heaven. And you know, as John Calvin said, you know, the church is funded upon the throne of God itself and it cannot fail. It can change. It can change. It can decline for a while, but it, it will not fail completely. Um, I mean, to hold on to that hope and hold on to the fact that God is still with us, even in the midst of many, many challenges. Absolutely. And, and so what perhaps saddens you at the moment? What excites you at the moment in, in Scotland today in terms of the church and the kingdom of God and, and that presence of Jesus being felt and telt. I think like many people, the, the, uh, the, the, the decline of the church is not a nice experience. And, you know, we're, we're fortunate where we are insofar as we still have people and resources, etc. So it's, it's, it's okay for us on the whole. However, across the country, it's really, really hard. And um, people are losing their buildings. Um, they're losing a place that has been the, the anchor and the centre of their faith for a long time. And while theologically we might, you know, have some misgivings about that, I think we still need to take it seriously um, because this is affecting people's faith and, and their walk of discipleship. So I think that's sad. I think it's also sad too, as I was alluding to a moment ago, the fact that even in this extraordinarily difficult missional context we find ourselves in, 
of contemporary Scotland, which to, in my mind is probably one of the hardest places in history to do mission. And I really do mean that. Um, often there's comparisons made with, with ancient Rome, but actually Rome was a far easier place to do mission than contemporary Scotland. Um, and actually in, in situations where the church is persecuted, although it's a horrible thing, it's a horrible thing, actually the church actually does quite well when it's openly confronted. It does not do well in situations where people are indifferent to it. And unfortunately, that indifference is really, really suffocating and um, it really poisons the ground that we're trying to sow the seed into. I think that the continuing lack of unity amongst Christians is a big problem. And, you know, we continue to be divided over sexuality and gender um, and a few other things. But like I said, the fact that now there's possibility of some kind of church planting network forming, that has to be part of the solution. Because certainly looking at it historically, one of the reasons why we're in this position now is because of the massive uh, schism result happened in the 19th century within the Church of Scotland, where you had about you know 40% to half of the church breaking away. Um, and that directly led to the state taking over our hospitals, schools, um, your social care, everything. And it, it really did limit what the church was actually doing in society. So to me, part of the solution has to be closer unity amongst Christians. And it's good to see that the churches that are growing, although they do tend to be more kind of congregation focused, um, nevertheless, they actually are really open to working with each other. And, you know, for example, there's a network of pastors in Edinburgh, you know, who have uh, regular prayer meetings. And there's people from every denomination going, you know, who are meeting to pray and to support each other and, and to praise God. And they're really, really trying to find ways in which they can reach out to their communities. So, you know, I, I see the growth of, the newer churches is exciting and promising. I think the ecumenical aspect of that is really exciting. Um, and the fact that prayer is at the heart of it. You know, this is not purely about, you know, we're trying to build up our institutions. You know, I mean, like, we're, we're told to make disciples, not churchgoers. Um, and, you know, that's really at the heart of what, you know, the newer churches are trying to do. Um, so there's a lot of good things happening. It's just that, particularly in the established denominations, they're not always happening within our ranks. There are in some places but maybe not as much as we would like. Mm. And one of the challenges that I'm aware that you, you give us um, is that to be audible, we need to be plausible. Can you, can you, can you share what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a big feature of the book, um, Mission in Contemporary Scotland. And it's basically based on reading a lot of, of what's called sociology, which is basically just the study of society and, and of social groups within society. And one of the things that sociologists say is that um, they take quite a they're sorry, kind of dim view of human nature, if I can put it like that. Um, rather than in a church context where we always think of people as being very kind of like spiritual, you know, and um, focused on higher things, you know, sociologists tend to look at things in terms of, you know, what is relevant directly to people's everyday lives? You know, well, what are the things? Well, things like they need to educate their children. They need houses. They need food. They need health care. You know, they need to get justice when, you know, something bad happens to them. So actually, those are things you actually need to be a person living in society at any particular time. And unfortunately, because of social changes, which I alluded to a moment ago, the church has been increasingly marginalised from all of the things that actually people are, are, are actually needing for their lives. The only thing we've got left is the more spiritual stuff. But in our society, people can follow any spirituality they want. And therefore, even there, we've not got much of a foothold. And so one of the things the books are, book argues really is that 
we need to actually trying to be um, doing things in our local contexts which directly meet the needs and aspirations of our neighbours. Um, so that could, for example, mean you know uh, serving people food. It could be uh, dealing with loneliness. It could be you know uh, realizing vacant plots of land. Um, but basically, unless people actually see see and experience the difference that, that Christians are making in their communities, they will find it implausible what they're saying about God and about God's mission. If you never actually see the effects of God's mission in the world, why would you believe it? You know, um, now, we, we, no, we, we, we are kind of, um, we have a different view on things because we're right in the middle of this. Um, whether as leaders or church members, and we're seeing things our congregation are doing week in, week out. Um, so I think, you know, but people don't see that. They need to see it actually having an effect. But also, too, it relates to worship, because, you know, um, the only real um, uh, reference to what we would maybe describe as evangelism and conversion um, within Paul's letters actually comes when he says, um, and be careful what you're doing in church, because an unbeliever could come into the church service and be converted. Um, so actually, he seems to think that actually the worship of the church has to be plausible, too. You know, if you're all fighting with each other and you've got no passion in your worship, and actually, like, you know, there's no experience of God's goodness and glory. Well, why, why should we believe you when we say there's a God and that God's doing stuff? Like, why would we believe that? You people need to, and, and, and Leslie Newbigin puts it like this, you know, he says that the church has to be the sign, the instrument, and the foretaste of the new creation, the new world that God is creating. Um, and the church has a really important part in being that sign, instrument, and foretaste. And if we're not pointing to God, if we're not, um, you know, a tool in God's hand, and if we are not actually being transfigured and changed by God's goodness ourselves, no one's going to believe. No one's going to find anything we say plausible. Um, so that's a challenge to us. It's not always easy. But I think the key thing is that, that you know, if we, this is to some extent a secondary effect from, from the normal walk of discipleship that people have. If you're genuinely, you know, passionate about God, if you're genuinely trying to give up your will, so that God's will is done. You know, if you're trying to pray frequently and read the Bible frequently and love other people, you will become plausible. <laughs> um, it's when we're not doing those things that we're implausible. And sadly, even to this day, there are many congregations where actually, sadly, they're not making faith plausible. And it's sad. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can try and help folk to, to, to be better. But, you know, to some extent, that's why we're in this situation. Um, and there's no, there's no getting away from it. Ruth, what, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, so many thoughts, Liam. Thank you so much for already sharing so many wonderful kind of rich insights and provoking and challenging kind of questions and thoughts already. Um, I was really struck with what you said in terms of um, in the Old Testament, we see prophets that give messages of lament and also of hope and both, you know, both times we've seen that in prophets of God they they have and even in the one person they have messages of hope and lament but it also ties in with what you're saying about um they are within one person they're in with within one bible and within our our church within our faith there's a there's a um room for both lament and hope there's room and space and a I, I suppose in one sense it's deferring to one another in love when we are having a different perspective on a situation or a different perspective of theology as well. I suppose you could extend it to that as well. Um, and I 
where that was leading me to just kind of think about was um, moving more into that. You were talking about the church being plausible, plausible. And what I was hearing from you was messages about unity um, and that ecumenical working so that it's moving away from denominational thinking. We're thinking more about kingdom approach. This is the kingdom of God looking into a community as well. Um, and I'm just wondering within within that setting of the kingdom approach and a kingdom mindset where we're all working together in that sense, and you're thinking about plausibility, you know, what kind of help uh, for churches would you suggest when they're they're looking to be plausible? They're looking to have that authentic worship because that's what I'm hearing from you. When there's authentic authenticity in our worship, it speaks volumes to people because it's not just contained within the building. What I'm kind of hearing from you is that actually authentic worship and authentic faith, it overflows and overspills. So I'm just wondering, you know, in, in your experience and, and your insight with this, are there places, are there tips that, you know, you would talk about or you could encourage us with uh, about that living authentically and, and seeing it overflow I'm just going to come back to something you said there, Ruth, you know, I think it's really important. And, um, you know, in, in Paul's letters, you know, we read the idea that we, we are one body and that there are many different members of the body doing different things. And the crucial bit which you picked up on is that the sin enters in when we say to another member of Christ's body, I have no need for you. I have no need for you. So it's a bit like the hopeful people saying to the lamenters, I have no need for you. Or the lamenters saying to the hopeful folk, I have no need for you. The established church folk who don't want anything to change to say to the folk who are experimenting, I have no need for you. And likewise, the fresh expression folk and the church planters saying to the other folk, I have no need of you. And I see a lot of that and I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it at all. Um, I think we all need each other. And that isn't just a theological point, although it's primarily one. It's, it's also a, a, a context point, a sociological point, because because we have so many different cultures in society now, um, so many different subgroups, so many little kind of pockets of uh, uniqueness you know there's not one size fits all approach to this um, some people in the in my book and were sort of like well why is he not telling us what to do uh, why is there not this magic bullet that's going to solve everything and that's because our society has become more complex it's like i mean and I, I turned to the part the, the parable of the sower which your viewers and listeners will you know know all about and it's really interesting to look at two things first of all how much difference there is in the soil that Jesus talks about, but be how unsuccessful the sower is. <laughs> so basically, like, there's like five, you know, four, five, six different types of, of earth that Jesus identifies in that parable. It's quite a lot. But to me, it's a bit like in our society, multiply that by like thousands of different times. There's thousands of different kinds of soil. And therefore, actually, in terms of, you know, um, the beginning of that process of plausibility, you know, we actually need to do a kind of deep dive into our communities. Uh, we cannot presume that we know what our communities want, need, think, believe, aspire to. We cannot assume anything anymore. Um, I'm sure some of your viewers and listeners will be aware of the analogy of the church as being a bridge which used to connect two bits of land over water, but then a storm came. And all of a sudden, this bridge which used to connect two bits of land, and maybe we might say God and the world, um, became completely disconnected from both. It's become stranded, you know, and, and that's a bit what some of our communities are like. So we actually need to really understand that we need to do, for example, community auditing. 
we need to actually go out to our communities and ask them what they need, what they think, where they see the issues being, and what they think of the church. We actually need to see ourselves as others see us and, and be willing to accept what they're saying. So to me, the first thing we need to do is just have a really deep dive into our communities. And there's certainly methods about that. And, you know, you can look these up online or you can look at the end, look at my book to get some tips. Um, but actually, a big part of it is about the attitude you bring. It's actually about if you love your community and we're all called to love our communities, that means we need to listen to them. It means we actually need to engage in real relationships with people. And we need to be willing to change our behavior if it's actually not helpful to our communities. So to me, before we talk about anything else, that is actually the foundation, understanding our community and understanding our communities so that we can understand ourselves and what we're meant to be doing. We just can't presume any of it. That's the first thing. But I think in terms of, you know, the, the relationship between worship and mission, this is actually really, really important. And, you know, certainly some folk within the Church of Scotland have um, become a little bit less... Um, you know, keen on mission language because of their experience about mission planning. And it's unfortunate, you know, this very noble and worthwhile thing called mission has sort of been implicated in some um, questionable decisions, let's say. But actually, you know, at, at the heart of, of, of mission is actually worship and love. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a real risk when we talk about mission, fresh expressions, church planting, whatever, that we actually forget that mission is a byproduct of the love of God and the love of people, you know. And, 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 you know, if you're genuinely loving God, you'll be passionate for God, you'll be passionate about your church. When you engage in worship, it'll be clear that you actually mean it and you're, you're actually engaging, you're actually relating to the creator of the entire universe and you're living in God and God lives in you. But also, if you genuinely love other people, you'll change what you're doing. If you love your child um, and the child says to you, what you're doing is really hurting me, you change your behaviour. If they're saying to you, what you're doing makes me hard to believe that there's a God, you might want to question what you're doing. So, you know, I, I, th I think that actually, rather than just sort of hints and tips, it actually comes from a, a, a primary attitude of loving God and loving other people and being willing to change because of your love of other people. It's so refreshing to hear you talk about actually not being scared of the hard things. You know, you, you're saying there, listen to people and and hear what they're saying about the church. You know, and you're saying that we need to listen to others. And if they're saying to us, what you're doing is making me begin to question God, then don't be scared of that feedback. In the same way, I think you talked about your book, part of the inspiration for, you know, that catalyst for writing it was understanding that there's a decline in the church and there was nothing on uh, mission within the Scottish context. and there were, there, But there was no fear from you there in terms of tackling it. We can have this response where we can withdraw and be scared of it, or actually we can see it as a precious treasure and engage with it and pull out all the all the goodies, you know, from that sense with it. Um, so th thanks for that. Um, just thinking about the pulling the goodies out and things being... Uh, perhaps difficult. You also mentioned about Scotland being the hardest place to share our faith. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more on that and what your thoughts are in and around that. Why is Scotland such a hard place then? Yeah, and, and you know, this is, um, I think some people probably open my book and think, you know, why is he not jumping immediately to lots of hints and tips to tell us how to do mission? And it's because I really honestly truly believe what I just said. I don't think we can do long-lasting, successful, nationally effective mission if we do not understand our context. Um, I really, really, and that's why actually the first part of, the first two parts of the book are really just about why we're in this situation 
and what Scotland's like today. But I think the first thing really to note is how, how much Scotland has changed in the course of the 20th century and then into the 21st. And one of the reasons why it's particularly difficult is that um, Scottish people moved around and lost connection with their traditional places of residence more than any other place in, in Britain during the 20th century. So basically, you know, a huge percentage of the population, I think it's something like 40 or 50, but 40 percent, I think, of the population moved between like 1920 and like 1950, 60. So it's like a, it was a huge amount of moving around. And we know from different studies that when people leave their traditional places of residence, they, they lose their, their customs as well um, and they lose their church connection. So that was a, that was one reason. The other reason, unfortunately, was actually due with the, the, the um, effects of the disruption and the fact that it multiplied the number of churches that we had massively. Church of England never had this in the 19th century. They had it in the 17th century they split. But in the 19th century, they didn't. So actually, you know, they were, you know, we, we had a situation where we had small numbers of people trying to maintain big buildings. Um, and we know from studies the fact that actually having a smaller number of people in your church makes you more maintenance-focused rather than mission-focused. But in terms of Scotland itself, um, the other big thing was the actual um, the, 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 the parliament building you know, and, and the creation of the Scottish Parliament, where actually various people have done research into this, and you read more about it in um, chapter five of the book, where actually you know, Scotland kind of began from ground zero when the Scottish Parliament was created, and it created a new forum where people who were often um, Scots who were less connected to the church um, were actually able to then uh, change the identity of Scotland. So it became a kind of real focus point for re-envisioning what it meant to be Scottish. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, I think there's, I, on the whole, personally, I think the Parliament's done lots of good things. So I'm not, I'm not trying to defame it for like that. But it changed Scotland's identity. Um, and it moved it from being a Presbyterian country. And that's how Scotland was known, you know, for the last four, 400 years, was a, a Scottish Presbyterian nation. Uh, moved it from, from being Presbyterian to being, you know, non-religious or, or post-religious and far more humanist in orientation. Um, so I think that had a big part too. But the biggest thing is just the consumerism. And, you know, basically my, my working thesis in the book, which is not a particularly original idea, this comes from sociology and different studies as well. But basically the thesis is that if people have um, everything they need in terms of housing, healthcare, food, shelter, etc., and if they have disposable income, right, which enables them to basically purchase the, the things and the experiences and the lifestyles that they personally like, then actually they don't really feel they need a saviour. Um, you only need a saviour if you need saving from something. But it's not obvious to people in our society, most of them, that they need saving from anything. And if they do feel sad or anxious or troubled or whatever it might be, you know, they go to counsellors. Um, they would tend to go to a counsellor rather than their local minister or elder. But there's still certainly a place in Scottish society for, um, for faith. And, you know, I think that um, in terms of the kind of good things that are coming out of it, you know, it's forcing the church to be as creative as possible. Um, and actually, one of the other issues we had is that the Church of Scotland in particular, it didn't have many styles of different kinds of worship. Um, you know, the Church of England had a much wider spread of, of going from high Anglo-Papist, as, you know, as some people call it, to, you know, um, low church evangelical praise bands and everything in between. We didn't have that kind of range. But actually, the, the massive proliferation and different kinds of church is really helpful for us and will help us respond to this very varied, pluralistic context we find ourselves in. But yeah, I mean, I, and I think that, you know, a big part of the issue is the sheer indifference. 
Um, someone once said that, you know, dealing with religious indifference is like boxing with jelly. You know, it's like, you know, you try and lay a, a punch on it, if you like, be a bit, you know, a bit violent imagery, but you like try and lay a punch on it, but it just sort of like, you know, wobbles away. You can't actually really engage with it. Um, and that's kind of the problem we've got. But like I say, I think that actually things may be changing a little bit. And I think we've moved out of the kind of, you know, new atheist, you know, sceptical faith phase. I think that's kind of over largely. And I think people probably are a little bit more open to looking at the big questions than they were before, maybe in the last, you know, 20 years. So I'm hoping there's going to be a wee bit of a change. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, but I think it is challenging. Yeah, I mean, I would really agree with you what you're talking about in terms of, I'd agree with you in terms of the tide beginning to change and people being open. Um, and when you were talking about identity as well, I'm just, it was making me think, you know, that Scotland had to refine in one sense its identity, you know, how much of that is actually interplayed now with the church as well and the church finding its identity, because obviously we have an identity in Christ first and foremost, um, and then that's the place that we live out from. And I just wonder, in amongst all of the transition that we've seen in society, has it unsettled the church in terms of her identity? And then the other flip side with this is was about the openness, because certainly I think Neil would talk about this as well with um, young folks that he's encountering um, and certainly people that I've encountered even in the outdoors activities that a lot of it, uh, a lot of the community I'm involved in. And um, there's a real deep uh, longing, seeking interest in spirit, spirituality. And more so, especially with young folks in levels of anxiety and mental health, there's, there's more and more talk about God, but maybe not quite sure how to connect in a disciple way with Jesus. Um, and I'm just, you know, just thinking, I'm wondering then, you know, does that kind of, is that hitting home with you at all? Do you, do you agree with that, just in terms of young folk, their openness with um, spirituality, but still a difficulty in discipling? Yeah, I mean, just to come back to the first thing you were talking about, Ruth, um, you know, you're talking about actually the unset, like an, um, an unsettling of the church's identity. So while Scotland is changing its identity and it ceased to be the kind of Presbyterian homeland it once was, you know, the church has obviously gone through a lot too, because if you like, if the, the state and society are disentangling themselves from the church, then of course, actually the church's identity has to change. It's no longer the state church. It's no longer the default religion, all this kind of thing. And actually, yeah, I mean, we know from studies in the 50s, 60s and 70s, the fact that the Church of Scotland uh, membership was, was overwhelmingly nominal. And, you know, we know that actually about 75% of the membership probably didn't go to church. And that's, a, and that's a startling statistic, but it's, it's not mine. You know, I mean, you can look, I can look up the references in the book. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of nominalism around. And like you say, I think that we've had to really kind of move away from this idea of being the kind of state church and the default religion, you know, and uh, being a good Scot and being a good Christian were one and the same thing. We've moved away from that now increasingly. And now we're moved to a position where, as you completely and rightly say, you know, as Christians, our identity is in Jesus Christ. You know, and it's in Jesus Christ that we discover who we are. And that's where I think there's a bit of a connection with the issue of young people, anxiety, depression, etc. Because if you put people in a society where they've got everything they want and they can get more or less whatever they need, but you also don't tell them who they are or what they're for, that hurts people. That actually is one of the reasons, not, not the only reason, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why you see people exhibiting despairing, anxious traits and sometimes self-destructive behaviours, because actually they don't know who they are, and they don't know what they're for. 
And actually, we believe that actually in Jesus Christ, not only um, do you become part of a community who can, who can hopefully love you and support you through life's challenges, but actually through prayer and through discipleship, you discover who you are. You discover your God-given identity. And, um, and it's wonderful where the more and more you become like Jesus, the more and more you become like yourself. And that is mind-blowing when you think about the implications of that. Um, so to me, you know, we have a really good message to tell people about not only about the love of God, but the fact that, you know, you were created um, by a loving father. And this father, you don't, you don't know who this father is. You've never had a relationship with him until now. But in Jesus, you can discover your relationship with the father and become who you are, become who you were created to be, um, along with all these other hopefully nice people, you know, who are doing good things, you know, it's, it's, it's inspiring. Liam, it's been inspiring hearing you share and your heart, your big, big, generous, God-given generous heart is is well 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 heard today and we wish you well in your ministry in Linlithgow and and as you as you engage our heads our hearts and our hands in your in your sharing like today uh, we need more and more people like you Liam sharing and encouraging and inspiring and and challenging us so thanks so much for for sharing with us today Ruth do you have, do you have a, a quick takeaway Oh, yes, I most definitely do. Yes, I am so encouraged, Liam. Thank you so much. I, my takeaway is this. We have an inspirational message that is perfectly timed and seasoned for right now. Jesus is great. Amen. Fantastic. Thanks so much for tuning in and uh, make sure you subscribe and join us for our next podcast. Stay tuned. In your neighbourhood trudge two dumped Jesus friends, drowning before dawning, moving through a maze of misery to an amazing Emmaus encounter. Emerging Emmaus. Good grief, our dream is dead. Going home instead, comfort of my bed. Good grief, the pain, hope hard to sustain, love down the drain. Good grief, where have you been? What we've seen? Blown to smithereens. Good grief, how our hearts burned, our minds turned, or all we learned. Good grief, don't go away, come in to stay, you've shown the way. Good grief, how he broke the bread with hands that bled, then disappeared. Good grief, Jesus alive, no need to strive to thrive Jesus alive good grief no time to waste now we have a taste to Jerusalem with haste emerging Emmaus a well-kent lament echoes through the years how long how long good as is the grieving process may it be a means to access visions and dreams of Christ's kingdom come Emmaus Emerge from the gloom. Come, Holy Spirit, come. So for future podcasts, join us via the Sanctuary First website, Facebook page and app, and also via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Come on, tune in.